0: To Peer Talk, a dialogue with business owners just like you. Peer Talk Conversations run the gamut of business challenges facing owners today. The host of Peer Talk is Dan Crowley, founder and owner of Peer Executive Groups, which provides a safe space for owners to share their experience, grow their businesses, and learn from their peers.
1: Okay, welcome to Peer Talk. There are a number of great business owners out there, just like yourself, who would love to share their experiences with you, and we hope to give them a voice. Hello, my name is Dan Crowley, host of Peer Talk. And today we have a special guest, Josh Nickel. Um, We'll be tackling the topic of succession as well as the topic of exit. And Josh had worked at Nickel Equipment prior to heading off to college at Drexel University where he was summa cum laude with a BS in business administration. He worked in the private sector and then returned to Nickel in 2004. In 2008, he advanced to the COO role under his father's tutelage until taking over as CEO in 2012. He steered the ship for six years, growing it into a four-location, $7 million entity, becoming one of Atlanta, Georgia's most successful independent rental operators. Father and son sold the operation to Sunbelt in 2018. Josh moved to England to work with Point of Rental in global expansion and operations. His year with Point of Rental led to a variety of networking opportunities, including peer executive groups as a board advisor and co-founder of Peertech, a tech firm focused on automated benchmarking solutions. Josh continues to play a role in the American Rental Association, Rent Items, Inc., Easy Hire, and serves on the board at Move, Check Mobile, Global, and that is only this month. Anyway, welcome, Josh. Thank you, thank you. <laughs> so um, we have a, a number of uh, topics um, that we're gonna be addressing today, um, as specifically inside of the succession uh, discussion. Um, businesses just like yours are facing succession today, um, different generations, and it we're seeing um, parents, moving the business to their children. We're seeing parents moving the business to key employees that have been with the business for a long time. So in your case, the origin story, did you pursue it or was your dad enticing you to become uh, familiar with what he did for a living when you were very young?
0: No, it's, it's funny because uh, I was not interested in it at all, um, at all. My grandfather was in rental. He he originally worked at uh, GE as a global accountant. And then when he retired, he was trying to decide whether he wanted to open a Steak & Ale franchise or a Taylor Rental franchise. Luckily, he chose the Taylor Rental franchise because we all know how Steak & Ale went. Um, (laughs) But he did really well. Um, And my dad was actually three months from his doctorate in dentistry. Um, He is my grandfather's son-in-law. And he was a new son-in-law at the time. And with three months left before he became Dr. Nickel... He decided to take a leave of absence because he was really good at what he did. He was a year ahead in college, but he absolutely hated it. And so he calls up his brand new father-in-law and says, remember that time that you talked about maybe me coming to work with you? I'd like to take you up on that offer. A long pause on the other end of the phone. And my grandfather said, yes, he came and joined him. And worked his way up in the ranks, they became the second largest Taylor Rental franchise, they ended up getting acquired. My dad stayed on with Taylor Rental moved to the southeast. There's a whole story alongside of that. But all that to say, um, it was very important uh, for my dad and my parents for me to find my own path. He always told Mm -hmm. me, if you find work that you're passionate about, the success will come but do what you're passionate about. And so they never, ever pushed me to be in the family business. And I think another thing that's important in the succession conversation is I'm an only child. Um, So it was either I was gonna take over the business or nobody was gonna take over the business. Um, It Mm -hmm. also eliminates some of the complexity that other succession plans have where there's multiple um, children and there needs to be a split and someone in and someone out. So I didn't have to deal with that. Um, But my dad definitely did wrestle with if Josh doesn't come join this, then what am I gonna do? And so I actually went to college on a full music scholarship. Um, I was very good at it, uh, but it turned out I didn't enjoy it at all. Um, And that- When when you,
1: wait a second. When you say music, what do you mean by music? Were you- Uh,
0: So I played uh, mostly the oboe, but a couple other instruments as well. Um, And um, I was in an orchestra. And you know, like the furthest thing possible from equipment rental. Um, mm-hmm. And went to college for that. Um, very quickly realized that that I didn't really enjoy that, and I enjoyed business more. Um, and I think we'll probably dive more into that. But it was through that business experience in college that I started to make the decision that maybe maybe there was something in equipment rental that I wanted to pursue.
1: Interesting. So, so when you were a kid, and you did you kick around in the business? Did you were you cleaning equipment off, or did you do any of that stuff?
0: Yeah, I definitely worked there um, essentially every summer. Um, I I worked alongside my grandfather at uh, Taylor rental. Um, Mm -hmm. I worked alongside my dad, you know, I, I say worked, you know, I was younger than nine when they had that Taylor rental. So it was more like, you know, sitting behind his desk and feeling super cool. And he was a very much a cost cutting accountant. So we would take the contract paper and we would cut it into chunks so they could pick, Make uh, post-it notepads, and and oh that was kind of one of the jobs that I got to do was cut the used contract paper up so they could flip it over and use it for notepads. Um, and then with with my dad at Taylor Rental, I remember being able to play on his computer and use solutions by computer back when that started. Um, and then when Nickel Rental started, I was eighteen, uh, so okay. I was already you know relatively older and knew what was going on. And it did work summers there. I cleaned equipment. Um, my Achilles heel is mechanics and fixing stuff. So I cannot do that to save my life. I really enjoyed, um, washing equipment, believe it or not, something about the mindlessness of it, the effort being out there and working hard. I really enjoyed, um, but just didn't, didn't really get into the mechanics of it. I actually once filled up a one ton roller, which most of you probably know has a Honda engine with a one gallon gas tank on top of it. I filled the entire water tank full of gasoline. And I rolled it back in and I took it to the guys. I was like, man, that takes a lot of gas. And they're like, really, Josh, where'd you put the gas? So, you know, they're, they're more than one of those stories, unfortunately, about me. And so it it, it didn't feel like the right fit for me. Um And then once I got into business school, I went to, I switched from the University of Georgia where I was a music major to Drexel University in Philadelphia, which is a co-op school. So Uh half the year you do internships, paid internships, but internships and half the year you go to school. I I like to call it speed dating for work. Um, And so I started off with Neiman Marcus and it was a, you know, a giant company, a high end organization. I thought it'd be cool to wear a tie every day to work. And they stuck the only male intern into Intimate's. Um, Epicure, which is food. That one made sense. And Children's. Um, But I really enjoyed the leadership experience there and the big corporate experience, except I didn't like how much politics came into play. Hmm. Um, A lot of your success was about politics, not how good you were. And that Hmm. kind of annoyed me. And while I could play the political game, I didn't really enjoy it. And so... After that, I took an internship at a very small company where I got to work directly for the owner. It was a brokerage house for insurance. So they sold insurance to insurance agents. And it was truly a boiler room. Like if you if you watch the movie Boiler Room, it was very much like that. People are yelling at each other. You're on the phone all day. You know, it was, it was a pretty crazy situation. But the thing that really was neat about that was working with the owner. And so we were out to lunch one day and, and just chatting. And he said, you know, Josh, I could sell insurance, which obviously he did. I could sell hot dogs, I could rent equipment. I just need a good product. I like running a business. And you know, that really kind of clicked with me. I was like, huh, you know, totally I don't have to be able to fix equipment. It's not really about that. If I can hire great mechanics, you know, they can fix equipment. You know, I don't need to be able to do everything. I don't need to be necessarily passionate about mechanics to be able to be passionate about the business. Um, and I am somebody who really needs a challenge and complexity. And one of the mm-hmm. things that's awesome about the rental industry is it is very challenging and complex. And so it wasn't long after that, that I called my dad up and was like, you know what, maybe we should give this a shot. And, you know, I haven't asked him, but I imagine that he probably felt a sigh of relief because then he knew he didn't have to sell it in just a few Mm. years. Um, And so I came back and joined the team and I did not join with any seniority. Uh, I joined washing equipment. Um, I joined servicing things. Uh, Again, I was terrible about that. So they did not let me do that very long. Uh, but then I moved into inside sales and then I kind of moved to an assistant manager role and then a manager role opened up and I took that. Um, but I really wanted to prove that that I was good at it, understand it, that I work alongside everybody and not get it out of nepotism. Um, Got it. it wasn't until 2008 that I really moved into that uh, COO role. And I know we're going to talk about transition later. So there, there's yeah. interesting things that happen through that.
1: Well, let me let me hit the pause button because I know uh, our listeners are going to want to know a little context on um, these formative years. So you're 18, you're getting ready to go to college. Um, nickel equipment's new. So mm-hmm. it, it, So, what did that look like? Was it one location, 10 people, seven mm-hmm. people? What was that like?
0: So when it, when it first opened, um, it was uh, three people, including dad. Um, one of those people, he had to bail out of jail before they even opened. That person didn't make it to opening one (laughs) of those people. So my dad's name is Tom. One of those people's name was also Tom. So there were two Toms and another guy. I don't remember the other guy's name. Um, funny, quick side story. It didn't make sense to have two Toms in the business. So my dad asked the other Tom to call himself Thomas, uh, fast forward Uh, 20 years, Thomas still works for us. And now his family even calls him Thomas. So my dad essentially made the poor guy change his name, but he's a great guy and he's super successful at Sunbelt
1: now. Um, But yeah. Dynamite. That's great. So the, so you go away and obviously you find yourself, you're going through this process of, I mean, and what a great story about finding a college with um, that type of co-op program, mm-hmm. uh, your experiences I'm sure were invaluable versus normal college where you're sitting in classrooms and things like that. So, uh, kudos for you for that. Now yep. you, you start to get the bug for business. You, you contacted, so did you reach out to your dad? Uh, I did. Thinking, you know, yeah. we,
0: we talked a lot, but I did reach out to him. And so a couple of mm-hmm. things happened between, um, 98 when he started and when I came back in 2004, Um, Yeah. So the the rental industry was rapidly changing. Everybody was um, uh, at least the better independents were selling out, uh, which was one of the reasons why dad went back into business for himself, because he felt like that was creating a hole in the the environment. And I remember coming home in uh, 2000 or 2001. And we were out at Ruby Tuesdays. And thinking as a college kid, like can my dad afford this? Like he is trying to build this business and run this. And I know things are tight and you know, at least I felt like things were tight. So I remember him going through those kind of startup struggles. And then in 2001, he also had another really cool opportunity, which gave us our second location. Uh, So in 2001, one of the locations that he actually managed of Taylor rental, that was about 45 minutes down the street, a perfect location for us, a perfect Mm. design, perfect setup um, was a, I think bankrupted by Taylor rental or closed, something weird happened like that. And so it was essentially given back uh, the property was given back to the original owner. The, the business was considered worthless, but it still had a team of people. Um, and so uh, dad made a deal with that guy to buy the, all the equipment from him. Um, to buy the building from him. Um, all of the people stayed on. Dad had managed them before. Um, mm-hmm. All the people stayed on. And then he went down to the Richie Brothers auction to buy everything that Taylor Reynolds was auctioning off. So he would buy these giant boxes of parts where he knew one part in there was worth a hundred bucks. And he modeled a lot of his equipment off of Taylor Reynolds. So he bought all this stuff, super cheap, got this location that he already managed. He knew the market. He knew the manager, super cheap. Uh, the manager already got along well with him. And so that second location was just a blessing. I mean, it just plugged in, um, uh, amazingly. Uh, and that, in fact, hmm. that, that store manager is still there. That store manager has been the manager for M rentals, Taylor rental. Um, then they changed the name to rental one and then they became nickel rental. And now they're a Sunbelt rental. And that guy is still the manager of that
1: store and doing well. Wow. That's outstanding. What a story. Holy cow. And and in your case, when you had the conversation with your dad, and you know you came back, mm-hmm. um, you obviously didn't come back as a COO. How did your, um, you know, how was it different from when you were eighteen and you were just filling in, and making hourly pay, and and that kind of thing? W- was he deliberate about trying to train you in certain things, or how did that work? Um.
0: Trying to think, I, I haven't been asked that before. I, I think that uh, I, I tend to be a pretty driven, competitive person, and mm-hmm. I had a strong desire to prove that I deserved to be there um, and that I deserved to be more than just a nickel. I, I really hated, especially at that time in my life, having my name on the sign because uh, people treated me differently. Um, it it gave me too much opportunity, um, and mm-hmm. he didn't have to do any of that. And he was just as hard, if not harder, on me. And I know everybody says that, but um, than he was everybody else. So, you know, it, it was, I think it was a really smooth transition in that because he didn't have to really worry about me. I had the business acumen. I had the background. I had the desire to prove myself. I was not below washing the bathrooms. I still washed the bathrooms up until 2018, occasionally. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. So I, it was it was a unique transition being new to your dad's business and kind of being in his shadow. Um, but it, it wasn't really that difficult of a transition.
1: Gotcha. Now, did he? Um, how formal was Tom with regard to job descriptions or training or orientation to certain things? Was was it more? Um, let me lead you by the hand, or was it? Gosh, we're up to twenty employees now. I don't have all the time, so you, you're going to have to learn from some other people as well.
0: Um, he is, if you've ever met my dad, he is incredibly formal. Um, I have been writing contracts since I was probably in middle school. Um, if we made an agreement that I was going to clean my room once a week on Saturdays from 10 AM to 11 AM, that was in contract form. It was in duplicate form. We both had a file folder with a copy of that. He now tells me that's because he would forget what the rules were and I wouldn't forget. Um, and so I might change the rules up a little bit. Um, but, uh, so I've been doing contracts when I was a kid. So it was, it was very detailed. Um, it was very much intentional that I didn't replace anybody or step on anybody's toes. So if I was doing inside sales, that was my job. And my job description was the same as everybody else. Now, certainly I got the ear of the owner. Um, so I could make an impression. Um, but it wasn't until I got in a true leadership role where I was actually making decisions and, he very much empowered me to make decisions within reason and try things out. Um, you know, I learned a lot of my uh, skill of empowerment and empowering great people and letting them make some of their own mistakes and letting them try them them out through him. Mm-hmm. I remember um, if you if you all remember the company accessories, you remember that company that sold you overpriced um, posters because psychologically it made people more engaged. And I yeah. loved psychology. So I remember spending probably, I don't know. Way too much money, a thousand, two thousand bucks on successories poster for our rental branch um, or the rental branch that I was managing because it was going to increase employee engagement. And I should have just bought regular posters. But he didn't mm-hmm. stop me. He talked through the decision with me. He let me try some of those things out, learn some of those things the hard way. And, you know, were I to go back, I probably would not buy successories posters. But the thought experiment, trying it out, seeing the impact it did make or didn't make. Um, was very important on me, so he wouldn't let me make the big mistakes, but certainly would yeah. let me try things out.
1: So, so no uh, fixed asset mistakes. No, no, like dad, we need to get into this category. The uh, only reason why I asked this yeah. is I'm ag- actually so I'm dealing with a father-son uh, situation right now, and, and another client where um, the the asset lines are they're like divided on it. So to mm. try to get them to come together and have an agreement. Anyway, I didn't know if you had anything like that. You know, so
0: um, we don't have anything like that, but probably partially because he's not any more mechanically inclined than I am. Um, So neither of us really understand the mechanics of the equipment, and we would lean very heavily on the branch managers and the mechanics to help us make those decisions. I also feel like a lot of the um, purchase decisions are more relational. It's about who your local dealership is. Um, mm-hmm. not whether it's one brand or another brand. Because in a lot of cases, it's Ford and Chevy. But if your Ford dealership is awesome and your Chevy dealership isn't, then Ford's probably the better way to go. And so we worked a lot off of partnership and a lot off of relationships. But I do remember my very first um, Josh go buy this experience was to go buy a um, and select our next brand of scissor lifts.
1: Oh, wow. And so
0: I went to the ARA show that year and I want to say that was probably around 2000, 2008 when it was in Atlanta and I was tasked with this decision I was like this will be great this will be so easy just going to pick out scissor lifts and so you've got at the time you had like JLG, Skyjack, um, Genie and whole lot I think were the the major players around our market and I would go from one booth to the next booth and I'd start in one booth and they'd be like let me show you all these amazing things about it." I was like, oh that's great you guys seem great. This looks like a great unit. And then I go to the next booth, and they'd be like, "Let me show you all about this." Oh, that's great. I didn't know I needed that feature. Now I need that feature. Oh, that feature that they showed me that was good isn't good. Oh no. Okay. Well, that's probably the unit I need. And then I go to the next booth, and I I probably went around in a circle to those booths probably eight times, and I'd be like, wow. "You know, I heard there might be some issues with the battery packs on this." And they'd jump up on the battery pack and go, "We fixed that issue." Oh, well that doesn't narrow it down now anymore, does it? Mm -hmm. And I remember it being just such a hard issue because the, in particularly scissor lifts at the time had so much similarities. And, you know, that's why I go back to the, at the end of the day, it was the relationship. Who was gonna be the better partner? Who was gonna stand behind you? All equipment's gonna break, all of it's gonna have problems, um, but which people are gonna stand behind you and support you as a business and be a business partner? And so that's how we Mm -hmm. made a lot of our decisions.
1: That's great. That sounds like a great learning lesson, too. And you're in 2008 when you started to take on more of that role of the COO. How old were you at that point?
0: So I was 28. um, And what really spurred that decision is uh, the recession. And we had just opened our third location, which we later closed, which was just an awful, awful thing to go through. Um, But we had been growing pretty quickly and then opened Mm -hmm. that brand new location into 2017 into a drought in georgia and a fuel shortage and then the great recession and it was Mm -hmm. just the perfect storm and perfect timing and honestly we were a little too cocky um it was the first store that we opened that wasn't on a main road um so we had to sell ourselves more we tried to be a little bit more like a national and a little bit less like us we also um got a location that we could grow into uh, we got a location that included some extra property that we didn't need, but we decided that we were going to be in real estate too, and we were going to have the real estate. And so we made some of those kind of ego-driven decisions that we probably shouldn't have. And mm. we got a little bit of our ahead of, ahead of ourselves. And so a lot of the transition came from he needed to focus on paying the bills, and he needed to focus on renegotiating the finance agreements and figure out how we were going to make it tomorrow. Um, And he didn't have time to run the operations and do all of those spreadsheets, make all of those calls and try and build those relationships. And so Mm -hmm. it was a really a division of labor that was absolutely necessary. He couldn't run the business anymore at that time. Um, And there were many times where, you know, we would wake up and go, is tomorrow the day that we're going to declare bankruptcy? Um, If it gets any worse, we're not going to make it. And it would get worse <laughs> mm. and we would still make it. Um, and, you know, at the same time, I had a, a, a daughter, I say a daughter. Uh, my daughter was born in 2008. So at the beginning of that crisis, uh, my wife was pregnant. Um, of course, my health insurance was through nickel rental. And, I, and I'm thinking, if this stuff goes south, what do I do? Get a job at Starbucks so that I can afford to have a baby. Um, wow. It was just a tough, tough situation. And I remember so many times my dad turning to me and saying, you know, this is tough but it's a great learning opportunity. You're going to learn a lot of great lessons through this. And eventually I want to say around mid 2008, sometime early in 2009, I was like, dad, I don't need any more learning, learning uh, opportunities. I've had enough, you know, let's take a break from those and let's have some, you know, time to relax. Um, Mm -hmm. But, but we made it through that and that really helped with that, transition because he didn't have a choice whether I ran the operations or not. Um, and so gotcha. he was able to see out of necessity that I ran the operations really well and did that really well so that when he then started to be able to come back and things started to improve, he didn't have to jump right back into operations because uh, I had yeah. been doing that without him uh, for a number of years at that point.
1: So if you're doing operations and he's still acting as president CEO, what where were the lines delineated? Like did, did he still handle all people issues or was that inside your realm? Um,
0: um, I handled people issues pretty quickly. Um, okay. I proved as a branch manager that I was really good with people issues. It's one of the things that I enjoy the most about business. I think it's really more about the people than it is about the widget that you have, whether it's equipment, whether it's tents, um, whether it's parts. Um, it's really, really about the people. And so I did okay. that well with my own branch. And so then when I moved up to kind of leading all of the branches, I was already working with most of those people, partnering with most of those people. Mm-hmm. The, the main things that I would go back to him with a people decision would be when it comes to the branch managers. Uh, and I think that's always a, a good decision when you're working with your direct reports and, and talking about raises, position changes, problems, concerns, opportunities, learning things. Um, those are the people that you need to be talking to your boss, in this case, my dad about. So I wouldn't make those decisions alone. You know. Whereas if we're mm-hmm. talking about a driver or a service mechanic or something like that, he shouldn't be bothered by those. If I'm really running operations, he shouldn't need to have his hand in those gotcha. types of things. And so there was never a dividing line on that. He never put his foot down on those things, um, but there definitely relationally was a, a line there. And I'd also gotcha. say that my dad and I think very similarly from an integrity and a people perspective, but our, um, our strengths are very different. Uh, I lean much more on the technology side. I lean much more on the um, building side. You know, I never would have started Nickel Rental from scratch. I'm just, I'm not that guy. Uh, he's mm-hmm. much more of a creator and an analytical person that I am. But I am somebody who takes something that's great and builds it into something better, builds structure, builds growth ability, builds scalability. And so that was really a good transition time too. Because as you know, running two stores is very similar to running one store. But when you grow Mm -hmm. past two stores, three and above is a very different world. You're really working on the the business every day and not in the business. You can lead Mm -hmm. two branches like you lead one. And I very much enjoyed leading leaders. So running that three plus branches, Rather than, you know, really by being in the day to day, being the sales rep, being the counterperson, all of those kinds of things. I could do it and I didn't mind it, but I really liked building that scale. And so that that was another reason why the transition worked really well.
1: Got it. OK. And so the two of you are running side by side uh, together, uh, operating the business. It continues to grow. We're getting closer to 2012. 2012 comes and did Tom. Like, take a step back from day to day work activity? How did that work? Where did he make himself more scarce or was he still there just the same amount? He just kind of gave you a different role. Well,
0: he was already super scarce um, because 2008 to essentially 2012, he was just working financing and, you know, kind of those back office things. He handled the accounting side as well so he was very closely tied to that team but as far as the operational team um he really wasn't doing much with them day to day they didn't see him a whole lot he wasn't officing out of any of the stores he didn't move back into any of the stores in 2012 so that that kind of clean break had already happened and you know i don't remember exactly how the conversation went down but i think it was something along the lines of you know when i'm working with vendors um, when i'm working with um new team members and stuff like that it would be easier for me if i could put the ceo stamp on there and we could transition you to something like the founder and president of the board Mm. or or something like that and he didn't have any problem with that at all um you know and And I think we just kind of did that one day and moved on. Um, There was no pride involved in that. There was no really letting go for him because he still got to be involved. I'm a big believer in whether it's your boss, your peer or your subordinate, you should be doing what you're great at and what you love doing every day. Mm -hmm. And I was already, you know, empowering him to do that by doing the things that he didn't want to do as much. And so it just meant he got to do more of those things. Um, He's not somebody who would have ever retired had we not been acquired. He loves the business. He loves rental. He loves working. He gets bored easily. He likes talking to people. He likes doing analytics. And so he would always do that. And the conversation between me and the leadership team was, was always, he's allowed to do that. You know, he is a great resource and he has decades of knowledge. So if he wants to come in one day and he wants to do a training on something or he wants to pull a new person aside and talk through something with it, his name was on the sign first. He is welcome yeah. to do that. And we appreciate his investment in our team. And so there was never really any conflict uh, that I can remember from, from any of it. I think the closest thing that we ever had to conflict was I had a, a strong desire to scale. Um, and and to build a bigger business. And that was something that he didn't really have in the same way and made him much more uncomfortable. Uh, so when we were making some of those riskier decisions, especially towards the end and growing really quickly and adding marketing teams and adding sales process that never existed, those things made him a little bit more uncomfortable. Um, but at the same time, all he did was help me battle test them. And then he would walk away and be like, if, you know if if that's the right decision you think then that's what we're gonna do you know um, and even up to selling the business he did not make that decision um, even though he was significantly the major shareholder at the time mm-hmm. uh, myself and the leadership team made the the decision to seek private equity and then we made the decision to uh, sell the Sunbelt. And and um, and we may get in some of this later but something that that may surprise a lot of people is sunbelt didn't meet him until we had decided to sell the sunbelt um he he very little interacted with sunbelt throughout the whole process which was very strange for them because technically he was the person who had to make the final decision um, but he was really you know we were empowered to make that decision and do what we thought was best
1: gotcha okay well in in 2012 13 uh, 14 this is about when i started to meet you, um, you what was it like you know what were your strengths and weaknesses as a as a young ceo somebody who kind of had the keys to the kingdom and you had to make decisions and direct the ship Mm -hmm. What, what was that like do you remember what that was like at the beginning
0: so, yeah, so my strengths leaned a lot more on the technology side, the IT side, the marketing, and the branding, a lot of the, the business sides of things. I was not really the equipment guy in the same way. Yeah. And, you know, I was starting to get involved a fair amount in the rental industry. I loved networking. I was a big believer in, um, you know, building advisors. And I, I remember actually driving between one of the stores uh, one day and listening to something going, I've got to build a board of directors. Um, and then approaching dad and the leadership team with the idea of we don't know how to solve these problems, you know, or all these problems. And, and even so, why would we not want to skip steps? You know, when you mm-hmm. have advisors who've been there, who've done that or have certain expertise, um, you don't have to learn the hard way. You can just jump through to the right answer. And, and so I was really feeling the desire and the need to do that because we were so different than by that point, than your one or two location companies. And we had aspirations to do so much more than, um, you know, one or two location co- company. We were growing quickly, which meant there were a lot of fires that we needed to put out. And not that we spent our time firefighting, but we actually just let fires burn because we weren't be able to put them out fast enough. And so I was really driven to um, find a way to build that advisory board and panel. And then I remember being at, um, I want to say it was a Reynolds show task force in Moline and meeting Beth Hoff Blackmer, uh, the current ARA president um, and uh, sitting next to her. And somehow we got on the topic of peer groups and I was like, you know, I really think it would be cool to be in a peer group. And, and she was like, well, they're amazing. We, we love peer groups. And, you know, I think she spent 30 minutes to an hour telling me how amazing peer groups were. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, that's wonderful, Beth. But I have been on the waiting list for a peer group for, I can't tell you how many years now. It's been like two years or something like that. Like I need a peer group today, like I can't keep waiting. And I love how how much you like this. And so I left that conversation and I actually was starting to try and form my own peer groups um, from that because like I needed that, I wanted that. And I knew some great people in the rental industry. And it wasn't long after that, I want to say maybe a couple weeks or something like that, that Beth called me up and said, hey, we've got an opening in your peer, in our peer group if you'd like to come and talk about that. And so... I, I knew that was what we wanted to do. I jumped in on that uh, immediately. I, I don't get nervous for very many things, but going to that first peer group meeting and wanting to prove myself with all of these stalwarts in the equipment rental industry um, was it was daunting to me because you know in some ways, I, I tended to talk about things like marketing and employee engagement and making people passionate at work and hiring processes and you know I was worried they were going to start grilling me on equipment <laughs> and I was gonna be I was gonna be done. Um, But it worked out really well. Um, You know, the peer group had a a really good balance of different personalities and perspectives and backgrounds. Beth, for example, not being from equipment rental, even though she's second generation. And I just I love an environment like that because I like skipping Mm -hmm. steps. I like learning from other people. I like battle testing my ideas, even if I'm just sharing something that they are maybe not as good at it battle tests it for me because I get better at it when I have to present it, when I have to pitch it, when I have to explain it, when I have to sell it. Um, So all of that went, you know, both ways so much. And so I, I, you know, I fell in love with that, that experience very, very quickly.
1: I I love that you use the phrase skipping steps because that's exactly, um, I think that what motivates people to join peer groups is this idea of, gosh, do I really want, to go the long route and learn all this on my own through my own experiences and my own mishaps? Or do I want to learn from others and find out what worked for them and and take advantage? And and what happens, and I think you probably saw this in your time in the peer groups, It within a matter of a couple of years, you feel like you've got the ability to do all the elements of business ownership, right? Mm -hmm. So you might have felt weak on the asset management side. um, But within a few years, you're like, Hey, I can hold my own on this. I'm pretty good. I actually can know what I'm doing. So that is uh, definitely something that uh, we count on with the peer groups, bringing that to the individuals. Now, in your case, you oh, also have the ability to,
0: to support each other in that. So I knew yeah. I didn't have to have all the answers. I could call up a friend, phone a friend, and you know they could they could help walk me through a decision or an issue or an idea um, or or something like that. And that that I think really made a difference. And I'd also say you know we were not cash rich uh, when when we made the decision to join peer groups. We were growing at like twenty to thirty percent and reinvesting it in equipment. And so we had to be very strategic about our cash decisions. And even though Mm -hmm. in hindsight, I realized that peer groups is incredibly cheap compared to what other industries charge for this Mm -hmm. kind of thing. I remember trying to make the pitch to my leadership team and going, you know, we need to spend some money on this. And yeah, the first meeting is in Aspen, Colorado, but I swear (laughs) there's going to be value that I'm going to pull out of this. I'm not just going on vacation to Aspen, Colorado. Um, And then I came back and uh, in that first meeting, we saved... Nickel saved $24,000 a year with one idea oh, wow. that we came back with. And so it easily paid for itself for the entire life of our peer groups with one thing that I learned. And um, it was very quick after that, that I think you started introducing um, peer groups for um, um, kind of up and comers or yeah or leadership teams. And so. When we were acquired by Sunbelt, we had three people in those peer groups. And and almost immediately when I came back, we put one in those because it was another performance multiplier. It was another opportunity to skip steps. Instead of me coming back and downloading what I learned from my peer group meeting and then enacting all of those things, they're now coming back and doing the same thing for me. Like, hey, I learned this. This is how we can solve these problems that I've been wrestling with. Great go do that. You know, it was like somebody else was solving all these problems for me and it really empowered mm-hmm. the team. And it was, um, I would say that's probably one of the free, most freeing investments that we did with having them in peer groups as well. And that's not I a know. sales pitch I know that we're talking about yeah. peer groups, but I really and truly believe that. And if you were to ask those people um, who have been very successful since um, about their experience, they would tell you the same thing
1: excellent well that's great to hear and um you know obviously not a sales pitch but a sales pitch but we appreciate it but i will i will say this so you then started to face some issues that business owners some had to deal with some didn't have to deal with and it brought you to a place where you started to consider um exiting uh from the family business Mm -hmm. um both you and tom and so before we get into that, because I do want to separate that, um, I know that a number of people listening are, you know, hey, operational succession, we get it. We see how Josh moved on from Tom. Um, now, you, there's two other pieces to succession that we didn't really tackle, and we don't net, we're not going to go into super detail on because sure. we're going to address the exit issue. But um, the two other pieces are um, you operationally transition, but you also uh, the value of the company grows under your leadership. Mm. So as the valuation grows, the equity, you know, obviously is growing. Um, you're getting compensated and and paid as an employee. Um, did you guys address at any point that hey, there's some let's get some skin in the game. Mm. You know, you might not have paid your way in to buy shares in the company but you might have earned in. Did you do any of that prior to the exit?
0: We did, and we actually did a lot of that um, throughout the years. So I actually was, uh, believe it or not, one of the original investors in Nickel Club. Oh, wow. Um, Because I was able to save some money on college um, by having the full scholarship for the first year and a half, uh, I was able to take that money and reinvest it in the family business because my grandparents had put aside money uh, for me for college. And so I took mm-hmm. some of those college funds that I no longer needed and put them in the business. So I was a shareholder from the very beginning. Uh, yeah, was not yeah. pushed to do that, um, but asked if I wanted to be a part of that. And and I thought that was a really cool idea.
1: I so, think it does. It, cre- it creates a glue yeah. uh, between the family members. Um, everybody's it got skin in the game. So it's a little... Plus, you're all participating in the upside at that point. That's right. Yeah. Kind of nice. Yeah.
0: And and I mean, I knew that my dad could do it. He was very successful at what he did. And so I I figured it was quite a solid investment. Um, Yeah. And yeah. So then from there over the years, um, my equity position uh, grew uh, steadily. There were a couple jumps probably towards that 2012 range. Um, my, it was very important to my parents to always keep me below 19% or below 20%, uh, because that's when you have to start signing bank guarantees and, um, Mm -hmm. in equipment rental, especially when you're growing quickly, there's no guarantees. (laughs) Um, and you have to sign lots of personal guarantees. So it, it was important for them to keep me from some of that risk, that downside risk for my family. Um, even though, you know, again, we lack the complexity of I'm an only child, um, so the business that I build for the family is business for the family, you know? And mm-hmm. so there was never really a, a super concern about how much equity, uh, I had. I also didn't always take a salary during, um, the credit crisis. Uh, I took a very minimal and sometimes no, no salary. Um, and there were many times, uh, throughout the years, even till towards the end or at the end where other people on the team would out earn me because I wanted to build the business and that's where I was going to build the uh, the value and the equity. And so that's, it was a very kind of informal, um, transition, very much simplified because I'm an only child and we both just worked really hard and figured that that would pay off for itself. And, Mm -hmm. you know, we work out the details if details needed to be worked out.
1: Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. And so, um, Josh, we appreciate you being here today. This has been great. Um, we, we hope that, uh, People will check out part two of this episode because in 2017 and 18, certain things happened in nickel equipment and some doors were opened. And, um, certainly Josh positioned himself and was able to go through an exit plan. So we'll be back on part two of this podcast. Thanks again, Josh. Oh, the suspense. (laughs) And we will, uh, catch up with you in part two. Thank you. Thanks.
0: You've been listening to Peer Talk from Peer Executive Groups, produced and directed by Noah Crowley and hosted by Dan Crowley. Subscribe to this podcast for notifications of future episodes of Peer Talk.